I want to remind you what I said last week as it relates to what Revelation is and what we see and what John is in his witness conveying to the church in the first century and every century since. It is a new revelation. It is a new state. It is the state of the church with Christ upon the throne having been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then been given all authority and power. Christ reflects on this in Matthew 28, and Paul reflects on this in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. The kingdom that we are focused upon is a kingdom of Christ, our God, our Lord. And so, Revelation is not history written after the fact. So some of your Bibles may say it's written sometime between 95 and 96 AD. I do not hold to that at all. What John is talking about in the first century to the early church is things that are to come. Namely, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And all of those things we'll look at in greater detail as we go along. Now, I understand that there are those who disagree with me, but I like the guys who agree with me. (laughs) That makes some sense. And also, I find their arguments compelling, and it seems to me that on the surface of it, the simple reading of Scripture is, these things are near, they're coming. So not only is it not history written after the fact, but what Revelation is a collection of symbols that show what is really going on behind and influencing historical events. And that reality still holds true. Have any of you seen the picture of that guy that runs the World Economic Forum and he has this like weird robe on? And you look at him and go, whoa, that's terrifying. He's nothing. He's nothing. He has no power. I mean, he may have some power in this earth, but compared to the, what's actually happening, that there is a man behind the man. And that man is Christ Jesus. He is the God-man, and he sits upon the throne. And what he says and how he rules, his will is the will that will be accomplished. And so this morning, John moves from verses 1 through 3, that's a kind of prologue, into the greeting. It's a sort of fairly familiar formula in terms of New Testament greetings. It is a greeting from God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or actually the order is Father, Spirit, and Son, so that the church might know why things have happened the way they've happened, how they continue to happen, and how all of the happenings that we see being the product of a sovereign God's work on earth brings us to a place of benediction and doxology. So while all the world is wrapped up in chaos and in pain, the church happily, joyfully, in a state of blessed contentment, marches through singing. Singing in this dialogical, that means dialogue, conversation, between those who are blessed and the one who is the blesser. Those who have received life and the one who is the life giver. 
It's a letter to kings and priests. This morning, I'm going to look at this short section under three headings. The first, a Trinitarian greeting. We see that in verses 4 through 5. Second, Christ in all his offices. We see that in verse 5 as well, the end part of the last part of verse 5. And then thirdly, a doxology of Christ Jesus. And we see that in verse 6. Sometimes my headings may not match up with what's in the bulletin. The reason for that is sermons mutate, change over time. Uh, And so at least you have a space to write some notes. (laughs) Let's look at this first point, a Trinitarian greeting. Now, in the order that they are presented, we read, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. All right, this is to the seven churches that we will look at in in chapters 2 and 3. We'll get there soon, but this letter applies to their particular context. Now, the reason why I hold to a preterist perspective is because if this is a letter written to them about something that happens in the future only and not to them in the present, then it violates the principle of biblical application. What's the point? What's the point of getting the letter if the words mean nothing to you in the present? Especially when John says, it's coming, it's near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, what the first century church is experiencing is rising persecution because a Christian says, No king but Christ. Caesar is not king. It is one thing to render to him some level of submission and obedience, but Christ is on the throne of heaven and earth. And we worship and adore him. And he is ultimately the one who gives us our directives. But do you know what tyrants hate? Our contenders to the throne. Petty human tyrants can't worship Christ. Because Christ demands what? That He is King of your life. And so, as we look at this letter written to these churches, what is John writing about? Who is John writing about? What are the circumstances that he is chronicling that would give to the church hope? Well, the first thing is this. It comes from God. This is a letter that comes from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son. It should give them hope. It should give them comfort and confidence. What it is, is is a letter of how things really are. And so though there may be these Caesars culminating in Nero, and then uh, you have Titus and uh, Antiochus, all of these men that come later, what they're endeavoring to do is show in their lives there isn't a king in heaven and earth. I am the king. But where is Caesar? Where is he? What way we sang in Psalm 49, and honestly, I love Psalm 49, and that's why I chose it. And as we're singing, I'm going, oh, this is basically Revelation. It is the application of the principles of the book of Revelation. Though men may have lofty power in this life, ultimately their lives count for nothing. But there is one who has paid the price, the one who has all the wealth in heaven and on earth, and it is he who is writing the church. And so... The typical formula, grace to you and peace. Why grace and peace? Because that is what God communicates to his people. 
In fact, the summary of divine speech in the Scripture is, to the church, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace brings about a state of peace. From whom? Well, from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This formula, this speech formula, this pattern of writing that indicates the eternality of the Almighty God, the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 19, or verse 9, verse 13, verse 22, there is an exchange happening in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel sees in a dream, and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man the the throne, the crown. Daniel sees something that will come. He is told in Daniel to seal up this word of prophecy, and then 400 years later, John is told to unseal or not to seal up this prophecy. So what Daniel has a vision of in Daniel chapter 7 has come fully true. It is fully manifested in the person and work of Christ Jesus when he was obedient to death. The Father, who is the Ancient of Days, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, gives to the uh, the Son the crown and the throne. This is the Father. John is saying, greetings from the Father. And not just the Father, but the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now, this is a strange way. It's a unique way of referring to the Holy Spirit, but it refers to the Holy Spirit. And not just in the book of Revelation chapter 5, in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and chapter 4, where we read of the seven horns, the seven spirits. But in those exchanges of worship, among this seven, there is never an act of bowing down to God. Because it is God. It is the presence of God, the third person of the Godhead, who manifests on earth the glory and plan of God and the power of Christ on earth. Now, some of you may have the old Geneva Study Bible. Some of the notes are great in that. And I'm going to lift this from the Geneva Study Bible, and this is what I'm going to read concerning the third person, the Holy Spirit. That is, from the Holy Ghost, which proceedeth from the Father and the Son, the Spirit is is one in person according to His subsistence, but in communication of His virtue and in demonstration of His divine works in those seven churches doth so perfectly manifest Himself as if there were many spirits, every one perfectly working in His own church. Wherefore, after Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, they are called the seven horns and the seven eyes of the Lamb, as much to say as His most absolute power and wisdom. And Revelation 3, 1, Christ is said to have their seven spirits of God. And Revelation 4, 5, it is said that seven lamps do burn before His throne, which are also those seven spirits of God. It is the Spirit made manifest in the church. It isn't seven spirits, It's one spirit operating in the church. And so we confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. And He has spoken through the prophets. Now the reason why the order is different is because John has a lot to say about Jesus. But what must be understood by us is that this is a Trinitarian formula 
This is a Trinitarian greeting. And so it bears the authentication of each person. And that should be of great importance to us. I have a picture uh, of my grandfather who was a a World War II pilot. He flew B-17s. And he's at the bottom of a set of steps, and there's a a military plane in the background. I can't even remember what plane it was. It wasn't a B-17, which is what he flew. And there is my grandfather shaking the hand of Dwight Eisenhower. That's a big deal. Um, Regardless of what you thought of Eisenhower or think of him, he was the man who won the war in Europe in terms of his decisions and ideas. That picture is precious to our family, not because it has my grandfather in it, but because it has Dwight Eisenhower in it. And he is shaking the hand of my grandfather. And that was a picture precious to my grandfather because it, it denoted what? This is the guy whose hand you want to shake. The Christian needs to understand that his identity is wrapped up in the one who gives to him or her blessed greeting. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all concur that you are a beloved child. And you should carry that picture around in your breasts, as it were, in your heart, and it should always remind you of your identity, of who you are. And this is what the Spirit does, is He proves to you, He shows you what the Father and the Son have done together. And that is oftentimes why, in epistles, the Spirit's name isn't mentioned. And it doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't there. It means that the Spirit is the grace and the peace that comes from the Father and the Son. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, we read of the Spirit who attends the ministry of the shoot that will come forth from the stump of Jesse's tree. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we read, But there shall come a rod forth of the stalk of Jesse, and a grass shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. That Spirit that attended Christ's ministry, that gave him lordship, faithfulness, holiness, is the same Spirit that the Father and the Son, by right of their redeeming plans, sends forth into the world, and He is in you. And so, when you hear on the news something about some criticism about the religion to which you belong, you pull out that picture, and you look at it, and you see that on that picture, there is the Father and the Son and the Spirit together with their arm around you. Shaking your hand. I remember the time I met him or her. I remember years ago I was in the Atlanta airport with a group of friends in high school and I ran into, do you all know who Goldberg was? (laughs) The pro wrestler. He was a super nice guy. 
especially when you have like five 18-year-old guys fangirling out, as they say, on Goldberg. Well, I told this story recently to a young man, a little boy, who we go to the pool and meet there, and he's a big pro wrestling fan. He's not allowed to watch pro wrestling because it is terrible, but he loves the characters. And I told him about the time I I met Goldberg. And every time I meet him and see him, he asks me about the time I met Goldberg. (laughs) We all need those aspirational encounters. That is what John provides us in the book of Revelation. We see the Father, and we see the Spirit, and here in verse 5, we see Christ. And so Christ is seated upon the throne. The Spirit is mediating and giving us the ability to see Him, and this is what we see. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We see Christ who, in these offices, three of them, is manifested to John and to the church. In this Trinitarian greeting, we see grace and peace that come to us because the three persons have labored for grace and for peace. While you were still a sinner, they came to you and declared peace, which is why you love them, or Him. You love the Father, you love the Son, and you love the Spirit because they first loved you and set their holy affection upon you. And without their greeting of grace and peace, there would be but judgment, darkness, death, and destruction. So what is to be our takeaway from this greeting? We belong to the fellowship of God. It is a greeting that comes to us from the throne room itself. And it doesn't come to us from a far-off place. Even, the Scriptures say, we are seated now with Christ in the heavenly places. It is an unshakable, intimate, undergirding reality. So it's not just, I don't care what that man says about me. In fact, what is actually the case is the world needs to be concerned with what we say about them. For do not the Scriptures say that we will be the judges of all the earth? In fact, if you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith on that section of the church and the state, there is a proper biblical element of the separation between those two spheres, but then there is interjected this thing, this element, The nation ought to, from time to time, seek the counsel of the church in various areas of godliness and morality. No one has ever called me and asked me, what does the Bible say about X? And that's a problem. Not because they need to call me. (laughs) Why are they calling me? I, I I know how the county could spend some money. We have a parking lot. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. We just recited the Ten Commandments. And when we recite, Thou shalt not kill, have we kept that law? And why have we not? 
because we have lost the vision of a God who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, and we care not for his law or for what he has to say. We care not for the guilt that is in our hands, the blood guilt. And that is why Christ has come. Because the greeting of the Redeemer is essential for an audience before the throne. And if we are not greeted by all three persons, then it means that God is not, in His essence, allied, cooperating in the purpose of redemption. And there is no union that we have hope in. So what do we see? We see the Lord who has blessed us, who communicates His faithfulness and compassion. God Himself welcomes us. Let's look at the second point. Christ and all of His offices. Look at faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What is a faithful witness? Well, this is Christ in His prophetic office. Christ executes the office of Redeemer as a prophet and a priest and a king, both in His humiliation and exaltation. That's Westminster Shorter Catechism 23. This is where exegesis and catechism come together beautifully. Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the office of priest, king, prophet, both in His humiliation and exaltation. Well, what is Christ's humiliation? It's being offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. Being made a man under the law, suffering upon the cross, dying, being buried, and then his exaltation consists of his resurrection and his ascension and being crowned king of heaven and earth. Well, as a prophet, what does a prophet do? He declares something. He speaks truth. Now, oftentimes we think of prophecies as those things in which the future is foretold, and there is an enormous amount of that. But the public preaching of Scripture is prophesying. It is the declaration of God's revelation to men. And it must be true. If it is future or if it's predictive, it must come true. But here Christ is called the prophet in this reason, for this reason, that by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation is made known by him. This is why John in John chapter 1 refers to him as the word made flesh. Christ declares to us the will of God both in his incarnation and by his mouth. And so we can trust what he says because he is the faithful witness. Now, what is Christ's witness that you and I have not witnessed? Kids, have you ever been asked to leave the room while your parents talk? Yeah. And you're wondering the whole time, are they talking about me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why we want you to leave the room so we can talk about you. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's good. It's a mix of things. Or sometimes we just need to have a conversation where we don't need to constantly be interrupted. There is a divine counsel of the three persons of the Godhead that you are not privy to, and you will never be privy to, and you cannot be privy to because you do not have the mind or the capacity of an uncreated divine being who is eternal and infinite. That is not you, as smart as you may be. But what we know of God's revealed will is what? That He is kind, that He is patient, that everything we have seen revealed points to what? 
His devotion and His patience is inexhaustible to sinners. Which means the things that we don't see must also be for our good and our benefit. Now the way the Luther refers to this is that we are either theologians of glory or theologians of the cross. If you want a little homework assignment today, go home and look up Luther's Heidelberg Disputations. And in those, and I've spoken about them from the pulpit a number of times, in these Heidelberg Disputations, he says that a theologian, a true biblical theologian, is one who discerns God's personality, his character, and his purposes in that place where his power was most clearly manifested. And where is that? Where does Luther say? And where ought we see it? Where does Christ destroy the power of the devil? In the cross. And what does the cross reveal to us? That Christ in his humility, in his humiliation, destroyed sin How much more Christ's exaltation? Here is the problem with many evangelicals. We don't hold to the Mass, but we don't as a body let Christ operate in His priestly office as a king who sits upon the throne who no longer suffers. And so we refer to a suffering Messiah. He doesn't suffer anymore. He suffered once and for all. Now He is compassionate. He is gracious. But the church is not an institution of a Christ who continues to suffer. We are an institution of a Christ who is on the throne of heaven and earth. What does that mean? The path and trajectory, even for those who do suffer, is triumph and victory. And all of this Christ is revealed. And not just prophet, but priest. And I got into that already. You can't talk about one and not the other. And this is where Hebrews comes in. Hebrews reveals to us the nature of and the extent of and the sufficiency, in fact, of Christ's atoning work. He shed His blood once and for all. That blood was brought before the throne of heaven and that blood covers the sins of the people of God. No more sacrifices need be made. It's done. He offers Himself up once and is no longer suffering. But because of his obedience, he died, he was raised, and he continues according to his precious blood as the one who is our Redeemer, with whom we are covenantally united, reconciles men to himself. And so whenever a sinner is brought, it is because Christ has died for their sins. Christ doesn't die for your sins the day you become a Christian, the efficacy of the union that you share with Him upon the occasion of His historic death is then applied to you. Okay, that's a big old concept. It's a whole other sermon series on the relationship of our union with Christ and the order of salvation. But here is, it comes down to this. You need no other priest but Christ. And Christ's work as priest is so effectual that you have become a priest and have been made a dweller in the house of God, which is a spiritual house. And so he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. Which means, as king, 
He subdues us to himself. He's our king. And he rules and defends us and in restraining and he conquers all of his and our enemies. And this is not a battle that Christ is losing. And he doesn't just win a battle here and lose a battle there. No, the trajectory of the church is a trajectory of increasing dominion and victory. And it will be manifested on the earth. Because the earth filled with more Christians looks like an earth that is different from an earth with fewer Christians. And so, if there is any office that is so clearly manifested in Revelation, we think of Christ as king. There's a throne for heaven's sake. But who stands upon the throne? It is a lamb who bears wounds, but he's standing on the throne. And he is constantly speaking, speaking, speaking. He is prophet, priest, and king. And this is what John wants to expand for us. This is our Redeemer. So, what do we do as believers? We understand this is a letter for you, that what is plain is good, and so too that which remains hidden. Future. Those things that lie beyond the fog of war for us, our sins are covered, and none can stand to accuse us. There are times where we feel accused by the world, and we begin to grow embarrassed, and our ears turn hot and red, and we think, oh boy, this is going to cost me something. Remember Christ on the throne who says, He is my child, she is mine, and there is none who can stand to accuse us. Do you know who is not there in that room? the accuser. Do you know why? Because he's already been cast out. Christ is victorious as king. And we who have been raised will judge the nations. And so, all of this should lead us, and rightly so, if we really believe it, to an understanding of what Christ has done for us. Benediction and doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. There is the benediction. So if I were to send you out and I could manage to memorize another doxology, which is for some reason very challenging, so I use the same one all the time, but it is the Arenic blessing, so it's good, we're covered. He loves us and he has freed us. How does he do this? What were we prison to? Sin and the judgment of God. Christ has freed us of this. And the way that he has done it is by his blood. Baptism is a sign and seal of our being washed by the Spirit. And though he is a king, though he is risen, Psalm 113 says, He also visits with the poor and needy on the ash heap. He is very much aware of our frail and sinful state. He was made like us, yet without sin. He has freed us from our sins and by His blood. We're free. The only free man in the world is a Christian. Everyone else is shackled to something. We are free men. And here's the question. If we are free, why do we allow ourselves to be shackled? Fear? Sin? 
deception, the approval of other men whose hearts are fully wicked. When Christ says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, and He's talking about the principle of marriage, what He is saying is, don't marry a ball and chain. Ha ha ha, right? He's talking about the, the hindrance of being covenantally united to one who is on their way to hell. You can't plow a, plow a straight line. You can't, you can't move forward in righteousness if there's this one who's constantly turning you to one direction away from the kingdom. And you hear it in your ear, the accuser accusing you. The world is tempting you. No, 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 no. You're going to be strange. You're going to be thought ill of. You may even die if you stand for Christ. But we're free. And the testimony of our freedom, the ultimate testimony of our freedom, is even if we do die for the sake of Christ, guess what? You're really free then. Absolutely and completely free. And so the first part of this benediction is that we are loved and we are washed by Christ. Then there's another part. He has made us into a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. Now, the church is a weak vessel that must undergo many trials, but it does not alter the spiritual reality of our identity. We are connected to, united to, the one who has all strength and power and blessing. We are a kingdom, therefore. We're not serfs that sit in the field outside the walls. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are inheritors of the palace. And like Adam and his wife, we are called to take dominion of the earth that belongs to Christ Jesus as citizens. The only citizens of earth. We sang in Psalm 49, What do the wealthy wicked inherit? They inherit the wind. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. But the righteous inherit it all. So I'll say to my kids, Kids, we may never go to the south of France. We may never go to the Mediterranean, but we will one day. <laughs> when the air rates are much cheaper and the inflation has been completely taken care of, we'll go when it's new. Right? In the new heavens, in the new earth. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. No passports. No is it TSA? Is that what it's called? No TSA. <laughs> it's ours. So why do we live like it belongs to someone else? Why do we? Is it fear? I think it's because the church hasn't taught these things for centuries, in this country in particular, or at least for several decades. And not only sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, whose inheritance is to sit upon the throne. Lewis understood this in Narnia, right? That those four children were once, or what would become the kings and queens of Narnia. But priests, it's not a civic house only. It is a spiritual house. And we are those who will mediate and manifest the presence of God to all creation. And even now this is true of us, which means it's our world to take hold of. So take hold of it. 
Now you may say, all right, let's do it. And you're saying, when do we win? We've planted a church. When do we win? I don't know. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? What God has planned for those. Noah labored a hundred years and never saw any church growth whatsoever. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, waited for two and a half decades before they even had a child. It's a mustard seed that grows in the largest tree. But here is the promise, and it's the language that connects us to Ezekiel 47, if you remember way back when, when I preached from that text. Ezekiel has a vision of the temple, and out of the temple is flowing water. And that water continues to flow until the water from that temple covers the earth in such a way that there is a river that Ezekiel could not pass through. And that river brings about trees whose fruit is for the healing of the nations. All of that comes from the church. The temple is you and it is me. That is what it means to be a priest. God has chosen us to be a blessing. To be blessed and to be a blessing. Our responsibility as the church then is to mediate the presence and the power and the blessing of Almighty God to those who have no power, presence, and blessing of Almighty God. So that all men might, with one accord, say, to Him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week I preached on the Tenth Commandment. In our obedience to the Tenth Commandment, is we ought not to heart lust for the things of others. We don't covet. But what we do is we get something, then we give something, only to get it again. This is the cycle. We receive from the Lord salvation. We give to Him glory, and He gives to us blessing. And we give to Him glory, and He gives to us blessing. And you know who always outgives? Christ! For every prayer, every faithful act. Those of you who've been at Reformation for years, you go out and knock on doors and you hand out flyers. No one has ever come from any of the places we've ever invited people to come from. But you know what happens? People come. You know why they come? Because we honor Christ in our labors. Christ will reward according to the merits of His redeeming work, which means the church will never cease to grow. And she will always be a blessing so that Christ might receive greater and greater and greater and greater glory. The song isn't doing this. It's doing this in its, you know, like that beautiful swelling sound of that most glorious classical music piece until it it just reaches a moment in its tone and, and beauty and all the instruments are coming together and you're listening to it and you almost begin to weep at the beauty of it, the crescendo of it. We've not reached the crescendo, but we're moving in that direction. And that is what John wants us to see. And we may be a small little refrain in that beautiful composition that Christ himself has written, but it will result in the glory of Christ and the blessing of his people. That is what we need to see. So we might be faithful and Christ be glorified. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do have-